We're going to continue on to Daniel chapter 9 this morning, the last part of Daniel chapter 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Last week, we sent out Redeemer Stafford, and so a few more empty seats this week as they'll have their first of continuous weekly meetings beginning tonight and going forward from there. So please do not forget our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Pray for them. Um, when you go to our website, RedeemerVA.org, you'll see at the top there's now a banner that has both their site and our site so that you can remember them and stay in touch with them and support and pray for them. We pick up with Daniel in prayer. The first part of Daniel chapter 9 is a long prayer of Daniel where he is confessing his sins, confessing the sins of the people. Daniel is older in his life, in his 80s. The, the people of Israel have been in captivity for approximately 68 out of 70 years. And he is asking for God to restore the nation, to bring them out of captivity and back into Jerusalem. The temple might be rebuilt and that the promises that God has made to the nation might be fulfilled. And so we have this morning, as we read from verses 20 through 27, one of the most remarkable answers to prayer in all of the scriptures. So let's stand and honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place." Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, being in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. We're going to begin with Daniel in prayer. And it says in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. So the Lord answers this prayer and sends the angel Gabriel to him while he is praying. And so I want us to be greatly encouraged by this passage this morning, that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And our prayers are not a waste of time. Daniel had been praying this prayer in some form or fashion for many years that the nation of Israel might be restored. But it's only at the end of his life, when he is in his 80s, that the Lord dramatically answers this prayer. 
And so I think it is important for us this morning when we see Daniel praying and God answering the prayer of Daniel that we ask two basic fundamental questions, which is whose prayers does God listen to and whose prayers does he hear and not hear? And so let's, let's look at that for a moment. Does God answer everyone's prayers? And I believe from the scriptures, clearly, the answer is no. God does not answer or hear the prayers of those that are unbelieving and rebellious against him. Those that are openly worldly and those that are religious but have no authentic faith, no authentic love for the Lord. They're going through a form of religion, but their heart has no love for the Lord. And so I would read to you a, a, an example of this that is important. It's from the first chapter of Isaiah, when Isaiah begins his rebuke for the wickedness of Judah and all of their form of religion that is empty, and it emphatically speaks to this point. Isaiah says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. So you get a picture of people coming together that are openly unbelieving and sinful and going through religious rites and rituals for the sake of going through rites and rituals. And he says, I cannot endure this anymore. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And so the ear of the Lord, sure, he is aware of these things. God knows all things. But his heart is closed towards those who are rebellious and unbelieving. The book of Hebrews is very clear in chapter 11. That if you are going to have faith, it begins by believing that God exists. If you're a person that does not believe in the existence of God, these empty prayers will not be heard of the Lord. But yet we hear this every day as we go through the office and through life. Oh, I'll, I'll send up prayers for you or some, some anon, just very vague, like this means nothing. And we should not associate this with the God of the Bible. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name, believing that he exists. And in faith, we offer these prayers to the Lord, which is what Daniel is doing. But God does hear the prayers of the believing. And I would like to point out to you three things that mark the life of Daniel and are pointed out in various places in the scriptures of, of characteristics that mark the life and the heart of people whose prayers are heard and effective before the Lord. And so I would say that the first person, the first mark of the heart, and it, it's because it relates also to this passage, a mark of the heart of the prayers of a person that's heard from the Lord is a person who is pure in heart. It's interesting in verse 20 of the chapter that we're in, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. It says, my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. You may be like, why, why is he praying about a hill? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, this refers to the temple mount. Often in the Bible, it talks about ascending up to the temple. The temple where it is now the dome of the rock where the temple was destroyed before, it's a hill. And there were psalms of ascent. As the people ascended up to this hill to worship the Lord, they would offer prayers and praises. And Daniel is 
thinking about and praying and seeking a time again when the temple will be rebuilt and the people will again ascend that hill and offer praises to the Lord. But what does David write about this when he writes about this hill of the Lord and the pure in heart? In Psalm 24, David writes this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. There's something incredibly important about having a clean conscience before the Lord, which means that you have confessed your sins and you are striving after the Lord because you believe in him and you want to be found pure before the Lord. You're not hiding any, any terrible thing hoping that God won't find out because he knows. Instead, you have exposed your heart before the Lord in repentance and faith and the Lord hears the prayers of those who are pure in heart. And we've seen from various passages before this one about the purity of Daniel's heart, his being above reproach in the way that he lived. But the second aspect of a person whose prayers are heard before the Lord is is just directly linked to the idea of purity in heart, which is humility in heart. Because every person that's pure in heart has the humility to confess their sins before the Lord and ask God for forgiveness and, and call out to him. The pure in heart, the humble in heart. One of the great passages in the Bible about God hearing the prayers of the humble in heart has to do with the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. I'm going to read this one for you because it's just, there's no way you can paraphrase it better than Jesus just tells it. So I'm going to read it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is what Daniel has been doing all previous in chapter 9, beating his breast and humbling himself before God, saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive this nation who is full of people that are wicked and sinful. And he is asking for God to forgive him and to forgive the nation. And so Daniel was certainly a person pure in heart and humble in heart. And thirdly, Daniel was a person who loved the Lord. And when people come together with purity and humility and great love for God, the Lord hears the prayers of such people. In John 14, 21, Jesus says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's this idea of obedience and love being bound together. And we understand this in the analogy of of the parent-child analogy of Scripture, God being called our Father, us being called children. And every person here that has a child knows that there's something bound up in obedience and love. 
Because a child can't say that they love you and just walk in rank rebellion against you because the two things don't go together. Now, I understand that someone can obey and not have love, but what we're aiming for in the scriptures is that we obey God because we love him and that our, our actions are motivated by the heart of love for God. And Daniel was certainly a living example of this. He did not live for God throughout his life because of a great sense of oppressive duty. He did it because he loved the Lord God, loved his ways, and sought after him. And so here we have Daniel as an old man, pure and humble and full of love for God and calling out to God in prayer and asking for the Lord to answer this prayer. And the Lord does just what Jesus said that he will do for us, manifest himself to him or disclose himself to him. And so the Lord discloses his purposes and his plans by sending Gabriel, an angel, uh, sent from the Lord to tell Daniel what is going to happen, to give him some understanding, some prophetic word as to what is going to happen in the future. And this is most unusual. As we'll see, there's only one other time in Scripture that I'm aware of. If you have another one, I'd love to hear about it. But I'm only aware of two times in the Scriptures where someone prays and is, their response is God sending an angel to them to give them a clear word from the Lord. And so before we talk about Gabriel, because Daniel has seen or experienced uh, nearness to, da- to Gabriel once before, and he says that in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, which is referring to Daniel 8, 16, which was the third year of Belshazzar when he had this vision of the ram and the goat. And uh, Gabriel was the one who interpreted this vision for him in that time. It says, at this point, he comes to him by swift flight to make me understand. So before we get into this, it's important and worthwhile to ask, what is an angel? Because I think it's not good to assume that we're all on the same page as to what the Bible teaches about angels. There's a great many uh, wrong and uh, misguiding teachings about what angels are. So let's talk about angels for a moment. First of all, angels are created beings. Angels are not divine. They're not somehow also gods or lesser gods. They are created by God, and they are servants of God. And since they are created, they are not eternal, and they do not bear any divine power. They are mighty, they are wise, but they are creatures of the Lord that work and live in service to the Lord. They are spiritual beings that reside in heaven, and in the glorious presence of the Lord. They, they live daily face to face with the Lord. What we long one day to enter into, they exist in now and have uh, since the time that they were created. The Bible gives us a window into how many angels there are. In Revelation 5.11, it talks about myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. In another place in Hebrews, it talks about an innumerable, a, a, a number that cannot be counted of the number of angels. And so we don't have an exact number, but it's a big number. And so don't think small count for angels. Think big count. Think a lot of angels honoring and worshiping the Lord. And it's really interesting to consider the fact that they worship God now in heaven, and that when we go to be with the Lord one day, we will join them in worshiping the Lord God, which is very interesting, because we've seen this passage and other passages in Daniel, Gabriel and Daniel next to each other conversing and hearing things, and it's just a really interesting window. 
Angels should never be an object of worship. All throughout the Bible, when they come from the presence of God, they bring something of the glory of God with them. And it's shocking and terrifying and clearly otherworldly to people that experience them. And they often fall down to worship. And every time they do, they're raised up. Don't worship me, man. I am not worthy of these things. We worship God alone. Intentionally, they raise people up and stop them from worshiping them. Angels should never be worshiped. We know that angels also have a characteristic of moral judgment because the Bible is clear that some angels at some point in the past rebelled against the Lord, led in rebellion by Lucifer, and those that sided with him were cast out of heaven. And this is where we have demons in the Bible, a similar counterpart of spiritual beings also created, also without divine powers or anything like this, but morally corrupt and in their moral corruption seek to do evil always countering the work of the Lord. And yet it is worth noting that no redemption is provided to them. If you take the redemption of Christ Jesus for humanity for granted, you should consider why it is that the Lord has not provided a door of forgiveness or repentance for demons, but there is none. There is only promised damnation for them and their rebellion. But angels serve as messengers and servants of the Lord. From heaven. And the, the scriptures are full of it. If you haven't taken this seriously, start taking note of how many times angels encounter people in the scriptures, and it's absolutely everywhere. Beginning at the rebellion of Adam and Eve, where the Lord takes an angel with a flaming sword and puts him east of Eden to keep them from coming back in, that they might never enter in again to the rest of God. And that is moved uh, towards heaven. That's another conversation for another day, but an angel keeping them out. Uh, Lot and his daughters and his wife compelled to leave Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction by angels sent from God. Daniel himself delivered from the mouth of lions by an angel. Uh, Angels proclaiming the birth of Jesus, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Angels proclaiming the second coming of Christ after he ascends. He's going to return just as he came. Peter, freed from prison by angels. And then the second uh, answer to prayer by an angel is in Acts 10 with Cornelius. One day I'll do a sermon on Cornelius. He's one of the most uh, neglected characters in all the Bible who is a tremendously important character. The first Gentile who himself and his family received the Holy Spirit. And it's Cornelius. It says, your prayers and alms have ascended to heaven. God has heard your prayers and he has sent me an angel to tell you that Peter's getting ready to come and impart upon you the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell him all that, but he, it's an answer to prayer by an angel. And so these are angels. Uh, if you're unclear on what angels are, uh, then look further into this, but that's a, that's a basic overview to help clarify some of the confusion on angels. So what does God communicate by Gabriel? So often, angels are sent with some word from the Lord, something to communicate to people from God. And it is an answer. He says that God has heard your prayers. And one thing that he communicates before getting into the 70 weeks prophecy is just absolutely beautiful. I have come to tell you, he says in verse 23, for you are greatly loved. What a great, what a, what a word to hear from God. That the first thing that God tells you before he says what he's getting ready to communicate to you is that you are greatly loved by God. 
That is really important, folks. Um, it is it's something that we don't talk about enough. It's something that I should talk about more from this pulpit, and so I want to talk about it some now, the love of God and what the scriptures communicate to us about the love of God because there is the general love of God for all the world and then the, the particular love of God for his church and for his people. And it's important that we understand both of these things and what God is doing in them. The love of God for the world, I'll read for us briefly from Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 14 says this, and this is a common verse. We could have pulled many verses that say basically the same thing. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. It's talking about foundational virtues and characteristics of God. And some of these foundational characteristics are restated often in these various ways, but righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Love is always included as one of the great uh, essential characteristics of God, one of the great master virtues from which all other the virtues of God flow. For without love, as Christians, if we don't bear this fruit of God's spirit, we have nothing in our life if we do not have love, if we don't have the love of God. We'll get to that more in a moment. God loves this world. His posture towards this world is a, is a posture of love, which is why John 3.16, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about his redemption and what he is doing in the world, he speaks this verse that has become so well known for good reason. God so loved the world that what did he do? What action did God take? He sent his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The motivation of God's love for the world and to redeem out of it a people for himself is love. There is also the glory of his own person and there are other things at work here, but we can never minimize or lessen the love of God for the world. But then the Lord has a particular love for his people. For his church, at this point in time when we're talking about Daniel, we're talking about the people of Israel, a chosen people. Daniel specifically appointed for a special purpose of the Lord. And so when we look at this, it's important to read some of the, we always interpret the Old Testament through the New Testament, that which is later giving us greater clarity. And John, the Apostle John, continuously camps out and comes back to the love of God over and over and over and over. And after his gospel is finished and he goes and starts writing letters to the church, one of the greatest themes in his letters is the love of God and explaining that love to them. And so we need to read. I'm going to read for us this morning from 1 John. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. John writes this. By the way, you remember the name that, that Jesus or that, that John refers to himself when he writes his gospel? He's the beloved disciple. He say over and over. He's, he knew that he was loved by God. And he was loved in a special way by the Lord. And so he wants others who read his writings to understand how much God loves them because John has experienced much of the love of Jesus Christ. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and love is perfected in us. So there's much that could be said about this, but I want to point out just a few things. Mainly that love is from God. This world is trying to take the corner of, of the market on love and, and present Christians as hateful people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians are those that truly understand what love is because they have experienced the grace and mercy and the forgiving love of God. And we cannot give up on speaking about the love of God constantly and helping the world to understand what the love of God is. And that it is, as it is said in this, these verses, that those who love God have been born of God. What that means is that John often talks about being born again, which means receiving spiritual life from God. So God is himself embodies and is love. And when he brings spiritual life to you and to me, that spiritual life comes along with it, the love of God. And we are affected by that. We cannot have new life in Christ and not become a person that is affected and then goes and speaks of others about the love of God. And so John also speaks of it in the negative when he says that if you don't love, you're not of God. So if you have been born again and you are in Christ, you will be a person that's full of love. If love is absent from your life and your life is instead characterized by bitterness and anger and hatred, it is an indicator that you have never been born again because you don't have the characteristics of God and his spirit in your life. And it's very clear that the demonstration, the primary and greatest demonstration of God's love to the world is Christ upon the cross. So God, in this love of God, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. When people say, how do I know that God loves me? The first response is that he sent his son to bear your sins on the cross that you might be forgiven and that you might have eternal life. They're looking for a different answer, but that's the primary answer that we're given over and over in Scripture because that is the way to eternal life. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And we see in this that God loved us first, and that's so important because any time that we have all experienced this in interpersonal relationships, when you are angry and hateful and your heart is hard, what breaks it faster than anything else is a person reaching out to you with love and grace and seeking after you. And eventually, you'll either give up your anger and relent and there'll be a coming together of the relationship or you will double down in your anger against that person. And this is what primarily happens in salvation, that God comes to us in his great love because he loved us first and sent his son to make a way of salvation. God is not dispassionate towards the world. When he comes to Daniel and says, you are greatly loved, it shows the passion of God. It's not just an information exchange here. The name of Daniel and his person and his sufferings are known by God. And his repentance and the beating of his chest and the sackcloth and ashes and the asking God, this affects God in an emotional way. 
We need to understand that part of us being created in God's image is that we are emotional beings. That's part of what it means to be created in God's image. You're not a stump. You're not like a tree that just has things come in and things go out and they just don't affect you. We are affected. And love is something that is to come upon us when we come into the salvation of God, that we become something like God and that we also are not dispassionate about the world. We care about the things of the world and the people that are around us. And as God has extended his love and mercy to the world, that we also ought to extend the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of God to the world. And then people will respond to these things. If you, well, have you, as the grace and mercy of God has been extended to you, how have you responded to that grace? Have you believed in Christ? We've been talking about those that believe and those that don't believe, and prayers being heard and prayers not being heard. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Have you repented of your sins or have you not? If you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then you are known like Daniel to the Lord. That by grace through faith, you are also dearly loved of God. Daniel was a sinner just like you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And yes, he had a particular role to play in God's work, but you also are dearly loved by God for the sake of Christ Jesus and his cross. And the grace that is extended to you when you lose sight of that in this world and you feel worthless and you feel condemned and all of these things, we must go back to the truth of what Christ has done for us and the love of God for us. And understand that Jesus said, I have gone to prepare a place for you for where I am, there you may be also. That's, a pow- that's an amazing statement. We only say that to people that we really want to be around. Hey, I, we've, I put out a great spread on the deck. Like, this grill is going to be awesome. I got your favorite drink. Like, that's where you are. There I want to be also. Like, I want to be together. And that's what Jesus says about you and me and those who love his name and seek after him. That he wants us to be where he is. He describes this of Christians. Christians are described as friends of God, children of God, like the bride of Christ, those that are being advocated for by God and a comforter by his Holy Spirit. And so fellow Christian, I want you to understand this morning that you are loved of God, just like Daniel was loved of God. Because the Lord loved Daniel and heard his prayer, he answers his prayer. And he gives, them this, he gives him this, this vision or this prophetic word about 70 weeks yet to come. Now, I will tell you that there are innumerable views of this. I agree with those that say this passage has been almost torn to pieces by the number of interpretations given to it. And so I'm going to remind you, as I reminded you some weeks ago, about the nature and the purpose of prophecy. It is my understanding that the nature and purpose of prophecy is twofold. First, it is to give us enough particulars to give us hope that God knows and is causing the future. And so we are given enough particulars to increase and strengthen our hope that God both knows and is causing the future. And second, that enough mystery is left to make it necessary for us to walk by faith each day. And so those two things come together to strengthen our hope in the future, but to keep us walking by faith every day. And so we need to also view and understand what is happening here in the, the, the time in which Daniel lived, and that we live many hundreds of thousands of years beyond where Daniel lived. 
So it's my understanding from Daniel's perspective that when he received this from Gabriel, it would have done a couple of things in his heart. That the details given would have been enough for Daniel to understand that his prayer is going to be answered and that the temple will be rebuilt, that Jerusalem itself will be rebuilt, and that a Messiah is in fact going to come. And that all three of those are very, very important because it means that the nation of Israel will come out of its exile and the promises of God will be kept. And that's incredibly important because Daniel was still in exile and he needed this hope. It's also my understanding that we are now on the other side of this. So many thousands of years have passed, and my understanding is that the majority of what is in this passage has already been fulfilled. And that gives us, should give us, great hope for the future when we read words that are prophetic in the book of Revelation and in other places about things yet to come for us, that we see words given in the past that were fulfilled and words yet to come and them being fulfilled. And so let's look at some of these these verses. We see in verse 24 and 25, language related, well, I'm sorry, the the times, first of all. 70 weeks, what is going on here with 70 weeks? Sevens are very important to God. It's it's something, I, I cannot explain this to you, but this is something that the Lord has done since the beginning of creation. We were created, first of all, to live and function in a seven-day week in a seven 24-hour day cycle. It is not a coincidence that we still, thousands and thousands of years later, function as human beings according to a seven-day cycle of week. That, that is not a coincidence. It's straight out of the way that God designed us to function as human beings. Work for six days, rest for one day. That's the only way it works. And so God expands that seven out into when the nation of Israel was functioning as a nation, he had these years of restoration, that there would be seven years of functioning and then there would be like a resetting of the culture a little bit. And after seven years of seven or 49 years, there was something called this year of jubilee, which was a resetting of the culture, a restoring of hereditary lands, the canceling of debts. It was a, as a precursor of redemption and the idea that of, of God setting all things right and forgiveness coming. But it was along the lines of sevens. Here we have 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years is the way that this is interpreted by almost everyone, which is 490 years, 70 times 7. And looking forward into the future and trying to divide up the future in a way that is based on weeks of years. So in a very big picture, let me tell you, if God gave someone a, a vision and a prophetic word that something that we would, we're all hoping and longing for would happen is going to happen somewhere approximately 500 years in the future. At least one thing that we can take away from that is we're going to still be here 500 years in the future, okay? It, that, that the world is going to continue on for at least that long, and that's what we have here, and it did, in fact, continue on. We can't take that for granted. That would be tw- 20 2,500, got to get my, my 20s right. That's a long way in the future, folks, and that's what Daniel is being given. But he's told in verse 25, 24 and 25, there's a finishing of transgression, sin atoned for, which points towards the completion of their exile. A most holy place, a going out, the most holy place speaking in some way to the rebuilding of the temple. A going out as the going out from exile. They will not be in this place forever. A restoring and a rebuilding of Jerusalem is spoken of, taking us to Ezra and Nehemiah and pointing towards the restoration of the temple. 
And it's my understanding that this time of, of from where Daniel is to the restoration of the temple is the first seven weeks, so the first 49 years approximately. In verse 26, we have after 62 weeks, which would be 434 years, an anointed one shall be cut off. And the idea that the anointed one or the Messiah is coming. This would be the cross of Christ. After this, we have in verse 26, people of the prince will destroy the city, which is interesting. Like why would the, how is it that the people of God would destroy their own city? Well, if you look at what happens after the cross of Christ up until the fall of Jerusalem, you have the radical rebellion of the people of Jerusalem being judged partly by God for the crucifixion of Christ and partly for a just zealous outbreak and rebellion against Rome, which has come upon hard by Titus, which ultimately brings about the destruction of Israel and uh, sorry Jerusalem in 70 AD, where the temple is torn down block from block, piece by piece, and is in ruins uh, until this day. And so it's my understanding of what we have here is that the time from the rebuilding of the temple to the crucifixion of Christ is this 62-week a 400 and approximately 35 year period of time and then you have another shorter period of time from the crucifixion of Christ to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And the final destruction of the temple is a very significant historic event because it is a doing away with the, um, the religious ceremonies of the temple, never to be brought back because they are fulfilled in Christ and not necessary anymore. And verse 27 gets into speaking about desolations and abominations. And this is something we're going to delay to Daniel 12 because there is more going on with this. Jesus speaks directly about something called the, uh, an abomination coming into a holy place. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 31, he speaks of it directly. And I believe it speaks of it directly again in Daniel chapter 12. And we're going to spend time on that in Daniel chapter 12. Because it seems that there is, though much of the work of God related to this prophecy is somehow encapsulated between the people leaving the exile through the crucifixion of Christ and the fall of the temple, the work of God is certainly not complete in that because the work of the Lord continues on after that and much more is spoken about and much more is given as to the second coming of Christ and all that that entails. And so those of you this morning, I would encourage you that are turning away and rejecting the salvation of God, as we've talked about earlier, that you would turn to him. Because Daniel is in the midst of God judging the people and now being told that he's going to bring the people out of that judgment and that a Messiah is going to come. And there are those that will go out and these things will be accomplished while they live. But you need to understand that in the midst of these things, there will still be those who reject everything that God does during that time. They won't believe any of it. They will hate God in the midst of everything. But there will also be those that believe and repent of their sins. And you need to understand that you are also still in the midst of the work of God. God is still working out his plan. And just like Daniel was in the flow of God working out his salvation, you yourself live in the midst of God continuing to work out his salvation in our time. And like Daniel awaited the restoration of Jerusalem, we await the second coming of Christ. And there will be those that though they have heard about it over and over and over, they will still reject and harden their hearts against the things of the Lord. And there will be those that love the things of God. 
who repent and believe in the things of God and long for and await for his coming. And when he comes, they will be welcomed by Christ our Savior. So I encourage you this morning that in the world you will have tribulation, but I want you to take heart in understanding that Christ Jesus has overcome the world. He gives Daniel a picture into what he is doing, and it is fulfilled. We don't understand all of this picture, but it is enough to teach us that Christ is coming, that the kingdom would be restored, and it was. We don't understand everything about the second coming of Christ, but we know that he is coming and that he will return again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for what it teaches us about Daniel, what it teaches us about the connection between heaven and this world, and what it teaches us about hope for the future, what it teaches us about things that were prophesied, and then those things that were prophesied came to pass, and then about our own future, that though there are things prophesied for the future that we do not fully understand, there is enough given to give us hope for the future, that you know the future and that you are causing it to come to pass according to your gracious and merciful will. I pray that this would strengthen us to walk by faith and hope in this day. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.